0: Want the reward? Do the damn work. Challenge yourself. Inspire change. Choice, not luck. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Racing for Recovery podcast. And I am happy to have my friend, fellow vegan, Fellow sober dude and an overall awesome talented guy, Moby, on the podcast today. How are you today, buddy?
1: I'm I'm okay. Uh how are you? I'm good. Um
0: just okay, or are you good and happy, or what what's going on?
1: Yeah, uh it's always a complicated question. Um, you know, how how's someone doing? Because generally speaking, things are good. I mean, I'm healthy. It's a beautiful, sunny day here. You know, I'm in Los Angeles. It's warm. It's, you know, Los Angeles in December is paradise. Uh, But I've had some family members dealing with some pretty intense health stuff. And that has been both upsetting, but also a really wonderful reminder almost self-evidently about what's important and what's not. Um, you know, there's nothing like, you know, someone you love being in pain and suffering and being scared to make you realize that pretty much, almost nothing else matters than looking after the health of the people we love.
0: You know, first of all, I hope everything goes well with that. And once again, um, when I was running today, I was thinking of, okay, what am I going to ask Moby and all these things? And I remember when I came on your podcast, I had the same thing in my mind, like, do, do I need to come up with these questions? And just like the first time, it the conversation just flowed, it appears that that's going to happen again today. So having heard you say that, My question to start this thing today is, how good is it to cope with emotional hardships with a sober mindset today?
1: Well, it's certainly a lot better than trying to cope without sobriety. And I guess there's a, you know, as you know, and I assume a lot of people listening would know, there are a bunch of different ways to look at that. There's, we'll call it like basic sobriety which is i'm not hung over i'm not filled with alcohol or drugs not you know and again there's nothing wrong with being hung over or being filled with alcohol and drugs it's just bad for me and i assume for you and for some of the people listening but so the fact that i'm a hundred percent physically emotionally spiritually available to be of service to the people who need it like that is precious from my perspective. But then as we both know, the other aspect is, you know, spiritual sobriety, emotional sobriety, you know, the result of doing the 12 steps, the result of prayer and meditation and therapy and eating a healthy, clean, vegan diet, like all of these things, in a way, are a form of service. And I know, I remember early days in sobriety, My sponsor, you know, this is when I had like six months sober. My sponsor told me that self-care was a form of service. And I was like, huh, that's interesting because we tend to think of self-care, you know, like getting enough sleep, eating well, exercising, not poisoning ourselves. We tend to think of those things as being a little bit self-indulgent. He was like, no, in order to be of service, you have to be healthy. You have to take care of yourself. And I remember bringing that up at a meeting and this bitter old alcoholic laughed at me. Wow. And he was like, "Ah, that's fucking like hippie nonsense. And I remember thinking like, oh, healthy boundaries. Like this guy's opinion does not fucking matter to me. Like his opinion is his opinion. He's a bottomed out old drunk who's angry at the world. I can choose to just simply wish this person well and move on. And so it's a really interesting aspect of sobriety, the, the the service aspect of self-care. And so that's my long-winded rambling answer to your question that without sobriety, I don't know how much I'd be able to be of service right now. And that that is really precious to me.
0: Um, well, just by that, latest answer, Moby. There's a myriad of ways I can take this direction. The one thing I want to say, uh, well, there's quite a few things I want to say. Your song, Ever Loving, which uh, reminds me of the vibe that you were just talking about right there. I I love it. I'm self-admittingly, you know, I, I didn't listen to a lot of your stuff because I was that 80s hair guy that was into all that back in the day but since I've had the pleasure of meeting you and starting to listen to your music and I read both of your books as soon as you kindly gave them to me I want to talk about that but that particular song really it's beautiful and I find myself I play it hit repeat play it again hit repeat can you talk about the meaning of that song for the people that are listening right now
1: yeah, it's a tricky one because it doesn't have lyrics, and it's obviously, it's a lot easier to talk about the meaning of a song with lyrics, but, so it becomes a little bit more of a, a fun challenge to sort of figure out the meaning of a song that doesn't have words, and in that particular case, and and maybe this, this will make sense to me, hopefully it'll make sense to, to you and maybe some other people, and if not, That's okay, hopefully. So I remember writing and recording that song. It was on the album Play. So the year was 1998. And I was in my studio and I was working on this album and my life had fallen apart. You know, I was even then a bottomed out alcoholic. I was going broke. My mom had just died of cancer. I had lost my record deal. And I was working on music for this album that I thought no one would listen to. And eventually it did, a lot of people listened to it. But at the time, I thought I was this depressed, anxious, alcoholic has-been who was making music for an audience of zero people. And I was working on that particular piece of music and I was recording a demo to an old cassette deck. And I was just playing the chords and I was humming what I thought a vocal melody could be. And then I took a step back and I listened to it and I was like, oh, it doesn't need words. Like, like I I actually think that adding to it would detract from it, would take away from it. And the hopefully there's a lesson there for me and maybe a bigger lesson for other people, which is sometimes, things are wonderful the way they are and appreciating something for what it is appreciating that we don't need to add to certain things to make them better. Uh, I, for me, that's an invaluable lesson regarding relationships regarding the present moment regarding health regarding everything. It's like sometimes What's in front of us is not just enough, but it's incredibly special. And because, again, to state the obvious, we live in this culture where everyone assumes that if there's more, there's better. You know, if you get more social media likes, that's better. If you get invited to more parties, if you have more famous friends, if you, you know, like can go on better vacations, it's this idea of always grabbing more and always working under the assumption that we don't have enough. But sometimes we have so much that we're ignoring. And I'm super guilty of this as well. It's like, you know, being in a beautiful environment, being healthy, being surrounded by nature or people that I love, and then sort of being distracted, thinking about what more could I have? And I'm like, rather than focus on what we don't have, Why not focus our energies on trying to truly appreciate and be grateful for what we do have. So and I apologize, all my answers are going to be incredibly long winded and rambling and (laughs) feel free to edit them later for uh, 21st century brevity.
0: (laughs) No, I I was wondering today if we're going to break our two hour record when I went on your show, I'm like, I could I could just talk to you forever. I, I love your long, your long answers. It helps me think of my next question. But I want to make a comment that for me listening to that song, it, it it exudes peace to me. And of everything that I have in my life, my request for more is just more internal peace. And I don't I think that's possible to have. I mean, it's not about, things. It's more about emotions and feelings and inner peace is my number one biggest um, goal that I want to continuously acquire. And that song, to me, that's what it reminds me of. That's why I'm constantly repeat, repeat, repeat. So I thank you for writing that. I I do want to ask you this with respect to what you were talking about, more stuff. When I was reading in your books about your uh, apartment, I don't know if I should call it a a mansion or an apartment, a big apartment or whatever it was, it was extravagant according to how you were describing that. And and when I was reading that, it showed me a couple of things. Yes, you were successful, yes, you earned your success, but it's another reminder that that's not going to solve the internal emotional hurts we have. And I want you to talk a little bit about when you were realizing that you have this beautiful, big place, but how it wasn't really filling the void for you.
1: Yeah. So I had the same, or I had a very similar upbringing to the majority of us. I grew up poor. I was on, you know, we were on government assistance and the circumstances almost don't matter. It's just, I grew up with the idea that, You know, when I was a little kid, I was like, well, when I become an adult, if I ever have enough money to buy a house, if I ever have a swimming pool, if I ever have a girlfriend, I will be the happiest person in the world. You know, so in the late 80s, I had left home. I was living in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood. I didn't have a bathroom. I didn't have running water. And I was reasonably happy, you know, for someone making $2,000 a year and bathing very infrequently. And... But I thought to myself, wow, you know, when things get better, things are going to be so much better. And then throughout the 90s, things got better. And then in the early 2000s, things got remarkably better. And when I say better, I'm putting air quotes around that in my head, because meaning I was suddenly famous. I was making money. I was traveling around the world. You know, I had an assistant whose only job was sort of like looking after my weird you know, food and drug needs. And I bought this huge apartment on the Upper West Side. Like, I mean, a ridiculous five level, it's a quintuplex there. It's such a weird thing. It doesn't really exist in New York. This might be the only quintuplex in pretty much all of New York City. Like even, you know, mentally ill Donald Trump does not have a quintuplex. Like it was so over the top and ridiculous. And I thought to myself, Okay, I grew up poor. I used to live in an abandoned factory. I'm moving into this five-level penthouse. I'm going to be the happiest person in the world. And I moved in, and my famous friends came over for parties, and I was miserable. And I was depressed, and I was anxious, and I started really panicking because I started thinking, like, what's wrong with me? Like, what's wrong with me that I cannot be happy with this material wealth? And the realization was to your point, to what you said earlier, like material wealth is fine. There's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't fix much. It, it can fix our ability to be warm in the winter. It can fix our ability to have enough calories to eat. It can fix our ability to get some good medical care, but it doesn't fix anything internal. And that was a, for me, it's a very hard lesson to learn, but as is often the case, the hard lessons are the only ones that really matter. The only ones we really benefit from, you know, if things were easy, we'd never learn anything.
0: You know, I, uh, I want to talk about our, um, our common ground, if you will, on, on trauma. And I remember when I was on your, your show and the topic of my mom's suicide came up and, and you started talking about your your dad I'm, I'm not trying to offend you by talking about this again but I, I remember how how that resonated with me on that level um can you talk a little bit about your dad because then i want to segue it into a proper healing channel that includes your mom as well but it was kind of interesting that we both have that same thing on how our parents chose to end their lives. And I'd just like you to share your take on that
1: yeah the the one thing I will say is because my dad killed himself when I was so young, I don't remember it. You know, it happened when I was around two years old. So it's a really for me, it's an interesting question. I don't remember it, so I don't know. If there was for me trauma around it. Um, And I know that your experience was very different. So that's I, because I didn't, I'm sure I knew my dad, but I don't remember it. And I have no recollection of him. I have no recollection of his death. I have no recollection of the grieving that was going on around me. And it's a, it's for me. It's a very interesting question. Is that just the function of the fact that I was very young, or have I blocked things out? You know, do I have this repressed, you know, avalanche of buried trauma waiting to come out, or did it slowly come out over the years while I was drinking and trying to kill myself with drugs? I don't, I don't know. You know, it's so interesting when they're such a central part of. who who i am as a person and i have no awareness of it so I, i do think though that a lot like as i got older there was a lot of other trauma in my life that i do remember and you know sort of like i wonder it's almost that question of which is more transformational in a bad way or just transformational is it one quick experience of trauma or day-to-day experienced trauma. And I don't, I almost can't speak to that because I just, I don't know.
0: It's when you're, when you're answering that, and I remember you saying this when we first talked about it, I'm like you, I can't remember my mom at all, but I, I remember the feelings that I felt, but not even understanding where they were coming from And transferring that into this next topic I wanna talk about a little bit that we really didn't get into last time. And I don't like referring to people as step-parents, but you gotta say what it is. You know, you had a, a, your mom got remarried. My dad got remarried. I know for me, some of the feelings I had towards my stepmom that were not so good for a number of years, and thankfully they, they are. And I remember in your book when you were talking about the relationship specifically when your mom was starting to decline because of cancer about how you viewed your stepfather. And I wonder, you know, if you want to talk about that, like on a, on a healing standpoint of what it was like for you to recognize what was going on in that situation with
1: him. Yeah. You know, he, he showed up right as I was leaving home. And so we never got to know each other all that well. Uh, you know, I was, I think they met when I was 18 or 19 and I left home when I was 19. So it was almost like a pass the baton sort of thing. Like I, I left the house and he moved in and it was great. It was, I mean, like in a way it was very simple and there was almost like on my end, like a comfort knowing that my mom was not going to be alone in this house. Not that the house was like some big Citizen Kane style rambling mansion. It was a very small two bedroom suburban, you know, house in a crummy neighborhood, but still there was this sense of like, Oh great. She has someone to watch TV with. She has someone to go to stop and shop with. She has someone to, you know, go on holidays with and the holidays might just be like getting in the car and driving to North Carolina and looking at birds who knows. But, uh, There was a piece that came with that and then when she became sick with what i call everything cancer you know it was lung cancer that became just metastasized everywhere he because he had been he had worked in hospitals he knew exactly what to do and that to me was like a godsend you know to have a stepfather who had worked in hospitals and knew how exactly to take care of my mom as she was declining and getting sick. Like that was, yeah, I mean, I I feel like he earned his place in whatever upper echelon of heaven there is by being so, I don't know, remarkable and caring as she was declining. Because as anyone knows who's been around people with serious cancer as they decline, it's horrifying, And I, yeah, I mean, the physical aspects, the emotional aspects, the change in personality, the, I mean, it's, it's horrifying. And he stood there day in, day out, minute by minute, and just took care of her. And it was really remarkable.
0: Well, I am gonna, at some point, segue into how being vegan helps with cancers and all these other problems. But one last somewhat difficult question that i think is a positive question tell us what the greatest thing your mom taught you that you that even you even think is more impactful today
1: huh um yeah that's so interesting because she taught me i mean there weren't a lot of direct lessons like we didn't have the sort of relationship where she would sit me down and say son let me impart wisdom to you um i do remember and i don't want to dismiss it but it's a the first thing that comes to mind is she was a big fan of some of the borscht belt comedians because half my family's jewish unfortunately I'm not like she and I were not Jewish, even though half my family, I have a very complicated family where like half of us are new England wasps and the other half are South American Jews. So I basically grew up in like a waspy Jewish family and a lot of the combination of comedy of like, you know, Jewish Borscht belt comedy, like the Jackie Mason school of comedy and then that's one side. And the other side was like more the Bob Newhart side of comedy. And I remember my mom saying one thing that I think she had heard some comedian say. She said, Okay, if it hurts when you go like this, don't go like this. And it was, I was like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. And of course, there are sometimes we should do what hurts, but also. It's sort of a basic wisdom, like yeah, if you're if you're doing something stupid that's hurting you, maybe it's time to stop doing that stupid thing. Um, Have you,
0: Moby? That is classic. Have you, by any chance? <clears throat> excuse me, and I just showed it in one of our racing for recovery educational groups the other day. The Bob Newhart skit, "Stop It." Have you seen that?
1: No, I mean I like like many other old people, I grew up watching you know, Bob Newhart, and he was kind of like, he was one of these guys where he was such an everyman that you sort of felt like he was a family member, Right. you know, like there were certain people, because I watched so much TV growing up, you know, whether it was Bob Newhart or Mary Tyler Moore or whomever, you know, Hawkeye uh, from MASH, like these people who were like, oh, You mean, they're not real. I thought they were sort of like just distant family members.
0: (laughs) You have to watch this podcast with him. He plays a, excuse me, I apologize about my voice. No, I'm not sick people because I'm vegan. I just have something (laughs) out of my voice right now. Um, He does this, he's a, a psychiatrist and he does this skit called Stop It where somebody is afraid to be buried alive in a box. And it's this whole thing of, just stop it. And it reminds me of kind of what your mom is saying, if this hurts, just don't do it. So when you get a chance, watch that. It's pretty funny. Um, Anyway, let's talk about how you became vegan and how awesome it is to be vegan.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I grew up eating the same food as everybody else, except I probably ate even more disgusting food. Like till the time I was 19, I loved, you know, bacon and sausages and bologna and going to Burger King and going to McDonald's and, you know, going to Wendy's and getting, you know, a Frosty and dipping my hamburger in the Frosty. Like I was just a gross suburban kid eating any disgusting thing I could get my hands on. Um, I don't think I ate a real vegetable until I was maybe 19 or 20 years old, you know, and the only my the only vegetables I ate were like, tomato sauce on pizza, and, and occasionally, a piece of lettuce drenched in salad dressing. So (laughs) I just food for me was like, indulgent garbage, the way it is for the majority of people in the Western or the whole world. And but I also loved animals, you know, starting when I was very young, my mom and I and our family, we had a ton of rescued animals. You know, we had rescued dogs, rescued cats, rescued lab rats, rescued mice. We bought an iguana that that a pet store couldn't give away. You know, we just surrounded by all these animals and I loved them. I loved them so unconditionally, but I also ate animals because that is our cultural paradigm, you know, to love animals, to not want to hurt animals, but also to eat animals. And when I was 19, I was petting a rescue cat that we had named Tucker who I'd found at the dump in Darien, Connecticut. And all of a sudden the scales fell from my eyes and my brain was connected and healed because I simply realized if I love animals, And if I care about animals and if I don't want animals to suffer, I shouldn't be contributing to their suffering and death and I shouldn't be eating them. So that was 1984 when I went vegetarian. And then a couple of years later, I was reading a book, Diet for a New America by John Robbins. And I realized, okay, raising animals for meat is clearly causing a lot of suffering and death but using animals for dairy causes almost more suffering because they're kept alive and they're kept in horrifying conditions. And so I went vegan, you know, November, 1987. So that was, my math is not great, but I think now I've been vegan for 36 years. Wow.
0: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What, uh, with respect to that, and I'm sure you take a lot of flack for that. I, I love the animal rights tattoos you have on, on your arms. How do you cope with those that want to battle this topic versus just having an honest factual conversation about this topic and leaving opinions and traditions off the quote table so to speak
1: Yeah I mean there as I'm just going to speak for myself but there are two ways to address that I'd say three ways one is me reminding myself that before I turn 19 I was one of them. Yep. You know, I ate at Burger King, I ate pepperoni pizza and I ridiculed vegans and vegetarians. So I have to remember like everybody's at a different place in their journey and it's not my place to judge. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I completely judge everyone. Um and I what I don't what I can't process is anyone who is who makes light of the suffering of others you know so for example when someone finds out you're vegan and they say "Mm, bacon i'm like well one that's just a lame joke but two you're reveling in the suffering of a sentient being and as we know like if you are an fbi profiler the first test to figure out if someone is a psychopath is have they tortured animals? How do they feel about animal suffering? Like that's basically FBI profiling 101. Psychopaths hurt animals and psychopaths do not have empathy when it comes to the suffering of animals. So it's really hard when someone makes light of the suffering of an animal. I'm like, oh, according to the FBI and most clinicians, you're a fucking psychopath because you have just made light of the suffering of a sentient being.
0: I've good answer. My friend, I've, I've had people, you know, I own a a pet pig and I've had people that have said that to, to me, I'm not trying to separate myself from anybody else who hears that mm, bacon standpoint, but I'm like, dude, you, you know, I own a, a pig and you're still saying that. And I think there's this giant unfortunate disconnect. And as you said, when you found Tucker, it's like things became connected. It's almost, and I, I'm interested in your your, uh, feedback on this too. I apologize about my voice. It's almost like becoming sober when that light goes off and we make that connection of, hey, uh, my choice to drink this stuff is killing me. I equate so much of it to the same thing with being vegan. When you make the connection, it's almost like, well, for me it was, it was like another sobriety date of course, yours has gone in reverse, you were vegan first and then became sober. But do you do you equate those two things as the same that connection?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, And it's weird, not weird, but it's recently, I was doing an interview, and someone asked me about sobriety. And they, they sort of were saying, like, well, at its core, what is sobriety? And on one hand, as we both know, that should be For most people, that's a self-evident question. Sobriety is not drinking and it's not doing drugs because you have a problem with drinking and doing drugs. Like that's pretty basic, but it made me think what's really the core, like behind that, what's the core of sobriety? And to me, it's so simple. It's the willingness to look at evidence and respond accordingly. You know, cause for years as a drunk, I ignored the evidence. I was like, wow, I'm hungover. I'm killing myself. I'm ruining relationships. I'm destroying my health. And I ignored it. And sobriety for me was the willingness to say, okay, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. All the evidence points to that. And now I'm finally willing to look at it. And I'm finally willing to do something about that. And for me, Veganism was the same thing, the willingness to look at evidence to say, like, okay, I don't want to cause suffering and death. So I should probably stop causing suffering Suffering and death. death. Like, the evidence was pretty clear. I had just spent a lifetime ignoring it.
0: Talk about the benefits that you, not just physically, I mean, I think that, well, it's not evident for people. So if you want to talk about it physically, please do so. What has it done emotionally for you and how has it increased your compassion and empathy for not only animals but people who are suffering in general
1: uh yeah i mean obviously physically i i'm a pretty healthy vegan i think you know i eat a whole foods plant based diet um i don't eat much processed food i try to stay away from sugar you know so I'm, you know, a, a, you know, I'm definitely not a junk food vegan, not that there's anything wrong with junk food vegans, but I like, I like broccoli. I like cabbage. I like, you know, whole foods. I like brown rice and black beans. So the health aspects are great. Like I went to the doctor recently and I'm like, I'm 58 years old. And he's like, you've never been on medication. I was like, yeah, nothing wrong with medication, but I don't need it. Why would I ever be on it? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm not anti-doctors, I'm not anti-Western medicine, but if you can avoid getting sick, why not? You know, it's just better. Uh, But then the sort of the compassionate spiritual side is once, for me, once I made a choice to acknowledge the sentience of other beings, and by sentience, I simply mean, I don't mean that they're rocket scientists, you know, I don't look at You know, a mouse and think that it's capable of doing long division and building spaceships. I look at the mouse and I think of you know what the philosopher Jeremy Bentham said is the question is regarding animals is not can they reason, it's can they suffer? And I don't think anyone could say that animals are incapable of suffering. And once you recognize that animals are capable of suffering, you realize they have these rich emotional lives and they want to avoid pain they want to avoid suffering and when you extend that to all creation you start looking at the world very differently and you realize most animals are leading incredibly peaceful lives even if they're eating other animals even if it's a lion even if you know like they're part of a system that's billions of years old and humans in a way are one of the only creatures outside of that system where we kill for the sake of killing. We torture for the sake of torturing. We ignore the emotional state of sentient beings. And I don't know what your experience is, but for me, it makes it very hard to be alive in the world knowing that there are 8 billion people on the planet causing so much suffering and death.
0: I hear you loud and clear it's it's interesting it's uh 115 out here our vegan chef he I haven't eaten anything solid since yesterday it's all smoothies and water and that's another thing that people don't understand is like the the benefits that you get from just eating natural food you're not as hungry you have more energy you're you're more vibrant it's all these things that I wish people would fully understand and in, in, in addition to the other stuff that we were talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the vegan, the consequences of our current food system are so disastrous. I mean, obviously, regarding health, I mean, Harvard Medical had a study a few years ago in The Lancet, which is, you know, this amazing journal out of the UK, about how 90% of our healthcare spending is lifestyle related. And granted, that includes gunshots, that includes cigarettes, that includes alcohol, but a huge part of that, according to them, at least 50% of it is diet, you know, causing cancer. I mean, like, I know that, you know, starting with Nixon, there's been this idea of like, let's cure cancer. How about, here's an idea, let's stop causing it. Let's stop subsidizing the foods that cause diabetes, that cause cancer, that cause heart disease, that cause obesity. So, it is sort of mind boggling when you take a step back and you look at meat and dairy production and you realize, OK, sure, it's killing a trillion animals a year, but it's also making humans sick and sad. It's causing antibiotic resistance. It's destroying workers, you know, who work in the meat and dairy production. I mean, it's the third leading cause of climate change. Like, it's such a horrifying industry. But yet we subsidize it. And it's and we support it. And people will yell at you if you say to them, hey, maybe we should stop using animals for food. They're like, how dare you? It's our right to kill and torture and destroy our health and destroy the only home we have. I'm like, what insanity are we living through?
0: I agree. And I was thinking of that when you're talking the 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 global impact that we're having. And I know, you know, water is now a topic that comes up. I, I remember my grandma years ago before she passed was telling me, you know, someday we're going to be having wars over water and becoming vegan and learning that it takes 600 gallons of water to make a cheeseburger is just, it's it's insanity. You know, if, if I turned on my hose and ran 600 gallons of water in my neighbor's yard, he'd be going bananas, but yet... Take 600 gallons of water so we can eat a a dead carcass really doesn't seem to make sense,
1: yeah. And, um, I mean, to put it in perspective, I live in California. Um, 50% of California's water goes to meat and dairy production, and meat and dairy production at present contributes 0.1% of California's GDP, so 50% of our water. Is going to an industry that's contributing 0.1% of the GDP. And the Colorado River, which, as we know, is like so depleted and it just keeps dwindling, apparently 90% of the water from the Colorado River goes to agriculture around meat and dairy production. So, and I've tried, at this point, I don't know what to do because I've had conversations with governors, I've had conversations with policymakers. And their response is so idiotic. Their response is, oh, yeah, well, you can't touch meat and dairy. I'm like, you mean you can't touch this industry that's using all your water and destroying the climate and making people fat, sick, and miserable and killing animals? It seems like that should be the first thing we should be touching. But no politician it's the third rail. No politician will ever, except maybe Cory Booker, no one will ever say, Our current system of food production is so stupid and destructive, we need to change. You know, I was
0: I was going to ask you because of your your platform and being a vegan activist, uh, I was going to ask, do you have the opportunity to talk to people that actually can make some decisions? And sadly, you answered the question in the way that I did not want to hear Have you, when you're having these conversations, is there, do you walk away feeling hopeless in this or where is the hope that things can change?
1: I'd say I feel 99% hopeless, 1% hopeful. And the 1% hopeful is a result of like, for example, uh, Lindsay and I were in DC recently and we were talking to some amazing organizations And I almost don't want to name the organizations because me being associated with them could hurt them. Like they're bipartisan organizations. They deal with Republicans. They deal with Democrats. They don't need, you know, a radical vegan with animal rights tattoos standing up for them. But let's say there's some amazing organizations in D.C. who I'm very happy to support anonymously so as not to mess up what they're doing. And these people are smart and they are D.C. natives and they're working on policy. They're working with the USDA. They're working with Tom Vilsack. They're working to, insofar as they can, move the needle away from the current system. But that's one percent. The other 99 percent is just people accepting that we have a status quo around food production that destroys literally everything it touches.
0: You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this back into another one of our favorite topics, um, sobriety. And on behalf of myself and Racing for Recovery, if I could, and I'll talk to you off air about this, I'd love to be involved in whatever you're doing with whoever organization that you're talking about. Because I do feel it's like, yeah, I'm doing my part, if you will. But like a lot of things in my life, one is never enough, and I'm sure you can relate to that. I'm not content knowing I could do more. I mean, I donate to a lot of sanctuaries and stuff, but still it's it's not enough for me. I want to do more in this area. I just, honestly, I don't know what to do. So let's yeah. talk about some of that off the air because I'm interested.
1: Well, also it is, and this is a, a a privileged perspective to have, but the yeah, the question is to say, how can we do more what can we do to help and my feeling is it's a it's a five part pie meaning there's this circle and there're five main things i think that you or i and hopefully other people can do one is to support traditional charities you know their tax designation is 501c3 so, you know to, to support the traditional charities and if you have the money to do it it's great It's also tax deductible. So that's why so many people focus on that, because you give money to a good organization and you pay less taxes in the long term. So if you can do it, that's great. The political side is a lot more complicated and a lot more painful because there's no tax deduction. You know, when you donate to a PAC or a C4, um, and sorry for being pedantic about this, but this is what I think about when I go to sleep and wake up. So the C4s, the political donations, there's no tax deduction. So when you do that, it hurts more, but it can also be very effective. And a lot of the 501c3s, like the Humane Society, also have C4s, you know, like HSLF, Humane Society Legislative Fund, is the non-tax deductible political action aspect of the Humane Society, for example. So... And I'll, I'll try and keep this relatively brief because it might only be interesting to me. The third thing we can do is support products and companies because animal activism, vegan activism is fascinating because there's so many products around it. You know, I don't eat it, but from Impossible Burger, Beyond Burger, you know, Stella McCartney making vegan handbags, all the products. Um And then the fourth thing, from my perspective, is supporting media, you know, supporting influencers, supporting people on social media, supporting documentaries. And then the last is using whatever platforms we have to just be as outspoken as possible, because from my perspective, it would be very easy to protect my career. You know, it'd be very easy to never offend anyone with anything I say, but to me, I don't know what's going on in my brain. That feels like sin to me. The idea of prioritizing self-interest and protecting self-interest when you know that there are issues that require our time and attention and help, I, I I can't in good conscience try and prioritize or protect a career when I know that there are issues that are so important that need my attention.
0: That's why I love talking to you so much and I I am I'll talk to Shante about this, but I I want to get you to come out and play a show at Racing for Recovery. You know, we uh we had a Van Halen tribute band out here this spring, and it was awesome. It's a very intimate uh, place out here, but I'd love to have you do some type of performance that we can arrange a message. I'm, really, I mean, this. in theory,
1: that sounds wonderful. There are two problems. One <laughs> is I hate traveling, and two, I hate touring. Apart from those two things, it sounds great. Um, I, I basically, I spent 30 years touring and traveling, and so now everybody I work with knows that my default answer to every request I get is a very respectful, I'm very sorry, no. Um, I, yeah. I might do some limited touring next year with the money going to charity, but I have spent years now becoming a master at saying no to everything that's offered to me.
0: Well, no is an example of self-care too. And if that's your way of I
1: When I I started doing Al-Anon, I remember here, and by the way, thank you for the offer. I'm not in any way making light of it or trying to disrespect it. I'm just saying, my categorical response to anybody who asks me to travel or do anything is just to say no. Uh so yeah, it's and I I mean the offers I've had have been global and some are really huge and hard to turn down but I just simply say no, no, no. And like they say in Alanon no is a complete sentence.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely it is. I I, I, I want to point out or, or make a statement on this that in the world that I'm in, you know, not only with being vegan and being sober, but being a clinician running, racing for recovery, it's been interesting to me that people will ask me for advice on, you know, how do I get sober or what kind of bike do you ride for the Ironman? And it's like, I'm this, you know, wealth of information that is valuable on certain subjects. And as soon as I bring up well, hey, have you thought about going vegan? And here's a myriad of reasons of why you should. the The conversation stops, and more often than not, I'm viewed as a moron. And it's like, how can I be brilliant here and an idiot over here?
1: Well, and especially, and that's and it's both sad and really funny, but especially because they already agree with you. Right. You know, like imagine a conversation like you're talking to someone, and I'm and I might say to them. How do you like animals? They're like, I love animals. And I'm like, so so you're horrified by animal suffering. They're like, oh, animal suffering makes me cry. It makes me so angry. And then you might say, do you care about climate change? And they're like, oh, of course I care about climate change. Um, do you care about your health and the health of others? So They'd be like, of course I care about my health and the health of others. And on and on. And then you might say to them, well, how about you stop eating animals? And at that point, they punch you in the face. <laughs> And it's just hysterical <laughs> yeah. and tragic because they already agree with everything. yeah, like we're they're not saying they love animal suffering. They're not saying they want people to be fat and sick and diabetic and cancerous. They're not saying that they want the climate to be inhospitable to human life. They already agree with us, except they're unwilling to act accordingly. And it's so frustrating and mind boggling. It's like we're dealing with a nation of, I mean, a globe of addicts where people are like killing themselves, killing animals, killing the only home we have. And they get furious with us if we ask them to change or even just suggest change might not be a bad thing.
0: I agreed. Um- we're have we've been talking for an hour. I don't want to take up a lot of your time, but I do have a couple more questions, but do you want to ask me anything so far that we've been talking again? Is there anything on your mind that you want to know?
1: Oh, well, luckily, I mean, we spent two hours here at my house talking. So, and also maybe I'm just a self-involved only child narcissist, but <laughs> I feel like, yeah, like we had such a great conversation yeah. here that, um, I, you know, I went through, I had a long list of questions before we met and happily you answered all of them.
0: Right. It's. Um, I, I remember you calling yourself a narcissist before. I thought that was funny. Um, I do. Let, let's talk about sobriety and then I'll let you go. One, I'll try and make this a different question than what you're normally getting. Are there any struggles? And I'm not talking about, yeah, I'm going to drink again. What do you find, if any, obstacles or struggles that you endure with being sober?
1: Well, it's a wonderful question. And I know every sober person wrestles with that. And from my perspective, maybe I'm fortunate, but I have, I've since I got sober and I have been sober now, I guess about 15 years, which isn't that long by some people's standards and it's a lifetime by others. And before that, I had revolving door sobriety, you know, like I would get sober, I'd go back out, I'd get sober I'd go back out. That went on for decades, you know, of crazy alcohol, drug abuse. And finally, October 2008, I bottomed out and I walked into a meeting on you know, First Avenue and First Street in New York and I raised my hand and I said, I'm Moby, I'm an alcoholic and I have not had a drink or drug since then. Awesome. And luckily in the last 14 and a half years, and maybe this could change today, but I haven't been tempted to drink or do drugs. And that's, we'll call like that's the physical side of sobriety. And luckily, I know other people feel differently, everyone's at a different place. But luckily for me, I have not been tempted to drink or do drugs in the last 14 and a half years. But the other side of sobriety, you know. Emotional sobriety, um, restraint of pen and tongue, turning things over, doing a daily 10th step, being humble and of service. That's the minute by minute challenge, you know, being compassionate towards others and prayer and all the stuff that comes along with steps two through 12, that to me is the challenge. And uh, I love when people, when I'm reminded that I need to do more around that, you know, I need to, you know, I can't be judgmental. I can't be critical. I can't condemn others. I can't be selfish. I have to, you know, like we, at least I, when I got sober and committed myself to the 12 steps, it was, it was committing to a life of service and, Commit, because my selfishness before I got sober was a disaster. I mean, that's the paradox of selfishness, at least for me, is when I was being completely selfish and completely self-interested, I was miserable and sick and killing myself. When I remind myself to be of service, when I remind myself to live in the 11th, I mean, the first step is the only one I have to do perfectly, as we know, the other eleven. They're there to remind us how we live good lives. And as long as I'm there, things have a much better chance of being okay.
0: You know, I'm, I'm fortunate like you. I've never had a desire to use since the day I put it down. It's this other stuff that we're, we're talking about. I, I, I live my life on empathy, humility, and gratitude. We talked about this before, but when you, when you're in tune to those three words. And if, if you really pay attention, like every scenario that's going on, I find I can at least find two of those words. Sometimes I hit the trifecta and if it's all three of those that are going on, I, I will say that the, it's kind of like with being vegan in a way, one of the things that is just, it's hard. It's hard to watch people suffer when all they have to do is stop one thing that's going to give them the opportunity to end the suffering, that's that would be the hardest thing for me to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean that's why I'm as we say in Los Angeles, I'm a double winner, which is an ironic term, meaning I go to AA and Al-Anon. Um, you know, my Al-Anon issues probably started before I was born, and I would I love your list of um, was it wait empathy. Gratitude and humility. 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 The two things I personally add to that are service.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because to me, that's my easy way of going out into the world is when I don't know what to do, turn it over and try just ask to be of service. And it's almost, I feel almost guilty saying it because there's a laziness on my part to that. It's like I go into a complicated situation, I'm like, I don't know what to do right now. Okay. God, whoever you are, whatever you are, just help me be of service. And that is my my magic ticket. That's the one that like immediately reminds me, okay, what's important to me? What are my values? What do I need to do? And then the other I add is simply, and it's an overused word, is compassion. And for me, what compassion means is reminder to myself No one really knows what they're doing, and so I'm in traffic, and some guy cuts me off. I can, it's empathy and compassion are very similar, but I have to remind myself I don't know that person, I don't know their life, I don't know where they're coming from, where they're going. I know that they're struggling because everybody struggles, and I have to remember okay, compassion like active compassion to me is just a reminder. Of other people's experience of the human condition and how confusing and hard that can be.
0: Wow, you know what, Moby? I'm gonna I'm gonna end this with that because we're both just saying basically the same thing of be, taking what we graciously have and turning it into service to anybody else who potentially can use it. And that, to me, is what sobriety is about. You know, it's yeah. and the
1: wonderful is. paradox. I'll just add on to that. The wonderful paradox is by trying to be of service, it actually makes our lives better. Yeah. So at the very least, even if someone's completely selfish, like be of service because you're selfishly going to be happier.
0: <laughs> I love it. I really appreciate you coming on, my friend. And it was good talking to you again. Thanks for your time.
1: Yeah, it was wonderful. Oh, I just did something weird with my phone. What am I? Uh-oh. Are you still there? I hear you. You've just
0: frozen in some... There you are. Oh, there I am. Yeah, there you
1: are. I pushed... Yeah, I I pushed something weird on my phone and everybody disappeared. Um, So I, I, for a brief moment, was in the existential void. But now, thank goodness I'm back. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, have a wonderful time at your holiday party. I hope everyone enjoys wearing pajamas and... uh, Yeah, and then have a great holiday season, and I will hopefully see you sometime soon.
0: Okay, buddy. Take care. Good talking to you.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: That was an awesome time talking to Moby. I hope you guys learned a lot, both with sobriety and veganism and overall just good conversation. If you or a loved one is having some trouble racing for recoveries, the place, give us a call, 419-824-8462. Check out the other Racing for Recovery podcasts on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe to it and share it with others so they can get the help that you receive today. Thanks a lot. Have a good day.